Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. It's been a while, but we will be in Genesis 6 today. And this whole apologetic series is called Genesis Fact or Fiction. The reason I titled it that was I don't believe you can break it up in parts or pieces. It's either true or it's not. Now, the Lord Jesus believed it as truth. He taught it as truth. He spoke of Genesis and the creation account as true. But I don't believe any of us is smart enough, and I hope none of us is arrogant enough to think that we can break it apart and decide which parts are true and which parts are false. But today, when you come to a really tough text, if it is true, then you have to say, all right, how do I navigate the waters of that? How do I get through it? Okay, so we've been learning in each chapter a different memory verse. We started this journey January of last year. I went 23 sermons in, then we took a break. I started Hebrews because I didn't want to be in one testament or the other so very long that you kind of lose sight of other things in Scripture. And so we're back in our series, and I'm going to change the way I preach it after we get over the flood narrative. After we get through the universal flood story, what I'll do is I'll begin to, to break it up a little differently and do it more episodic and less with a, I have to do less of sort of a magnifying glass down into the minutia, and I'll have to take bigger snapshots. Otherwise, listen, it's 50 chapters long. I want to finish this book before I die and see Jesus face to face, okay? And I want you to be able to finish. So we're going to take it more episodically. It's still going to be expository. It's still going to be exegetical. It's still going to walk through the book. But it'll be, we'll, we'll skip over some big parts with things that uh, maybe don't move the narrative forward as much. Not that they're less important. But what we do when I preach a book at Grace, because some of you are new and we have a whole giant classroom full of Perspective new folks up there. It was awesome to just talk to the Life at Gracers. Um, it's a huge room of folks and a lot of young families, which is fun to see with kids. So um, I'm really thankful for that. But as we jump in here, I like to try to memorize a verse per chapter, okay? And you'll love the verse we're going to memorize for chapter six. It's the easiest of them all, but maybe the most important of them all. But let's go back, and that way it allows me to rehash where we've been a little bit. Genesis 1, God creates everything. And the pinnacle of God's creation in day six would be the creation of mankind in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Uh, What we're going to read in this verse speaks to the current issues of gender and sexuality. It speaks to whether we're binary or non-binary as a species of people, as a race, and certainly we are, biblically speaking. That's not to say that there aren't those who have um, certain um, thoughts and, uh, I would say, mental uh, conditions that believe that something is different. But listen, God's clear on this. God didn't stutter. And my position, though the world has changed, my position being a biblical position is not changed. God creates male and female, period. That's the way this works. And when you have tiny, tiny anomalies in there, and you can go back and listen to my messages on this, um, you don't make the rule based on the anomaly, okay? And so I want us to read these verses together. We'll put them on the screens to remind you, but we kind of took some time to memorize these as we were walking through the first five chapters. So start with Genesis chapter one, verse 27. Join me. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
You see a binary there, right? It's a simple system. Genesis 2.18, join me. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. I believe in a complementarian relationship between men and women. We're created equal in dignity, value, and worth in every way, but with different roles, responsibilities, and positions in this life. Not that one is higher or lower, better or worse, but different. That's why I believe the nuclear family of a mother and a father and children are best. And even if you're not a Christian, even if you're watching or you're here in the room and you don't believe in Christianity, the data is overwhelming. That is the best scenario for children in a healthy home, mother, father, child. Then we have a problem. Things look really good. God's made us. He's seen his creation is very good. He creates marriage in the garden. Eve is called Adam's wife. But then they make a horrible series of decisions. We walked through that together in chapter 3. So let's read the Proto-Evangelium. It's Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. As God is speaking to the serpent, Lucifer the devil, as he says, I'm going to curse you. And he's just going to show us a glimpse of the gospel. Join me. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, Jesus is going to deal a death blow to Satan, but Satan is going to attempt to injure the Lord Jesus. And Satan is going to use anything and everything to try to keep Christ from his mission. But ultimately, of course, he fails. Then I coupled Genesis 4 and 5 because there's so much of a genealogical listing there through the line of Seth and the line of Cain that we'll talk about today. But remember, when God asked for, he didn't ask, when Cain and Abel brought an offering, Cain's was not respected. Abel's was accepted. Cain's was not respected. Cain gets very mad, and God says, be careful, Cain. Be careful. He didn't listen, of course, to his father, because soon he would rise up and take the life of his brother and spill his blood on the ground. But the Lord gives a fair warning. Be careful. Let's do this. Genesis 4, 7. Join me. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Yeah, think about that. Sin wants to pounce on you. It's waiting for not only Cain, but for us all. And today, love this memory verse. It'll be the easiest of the whole group, but without these words, we would not be here. Without what we're going to see right now, you and I would not be here. Nothing you see would be here. No one you love would be here. And it's not that Noah was without fault. Noah had many faults. But praise God for what we're going to read in Genesis 6, 8. Let's learn this over the next few weeks. You ready? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Think about that. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Without that, everything you see and everyone you love would be wiped away. Today, A storm is brewing. That's what we're going to talk about. A storm is brewing. I believe if you can affirm literal creation and the understanding of a universal flood, you can explain the evidence, the fossil record, the archaeological evidence we have on this earth. I'm going to be unpacking that in the coming weeks and why I believe that you can uh, understand that. You know, for the last two centuries or so, 200 plus years, there's been an attack on biblical Christianity starting in Genesis. An evolutionary theory in some form or fashion tries to combine time, 
enough time, chance, even though they believe in natural selection, and matter. And if I have enough time, chance, and matter, I get through mutation all that we see and all that we have today. It's absolutely ludicrous. I read an article this past week even about the clotting mechanisms of blood and that there are a certain number of steps. I believe it was 12. And without all of those working simultaneously, blood doesn't clot. A creature bleeds out. Humankind, you can think of those that are hemophiliac. They bleed out and life cannot be sustained. And so even if you tried to, with your best imagination, make evolution work in parts and pieces and this little thing mutates to that and then this shifts here and that goes there. It takes far more faith than simply the biblical narrative. And we must remind ourselves that even guys like Charles Darwin saw great holes in his theory. Even Darwin himself didn't consider this to be law or truth. So I'm going to say, did we come out of primordial slime? Are we single-celled organisms? Did we come from the fish, the birds, the monkeys? Absolutely not. If you're here at Grace for this series, if you're listening online, and this series garnered a lot of attention last year, so I'm hoping folks will tune back in. I want to remind you that we were formed and fashioned by the hands of a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And he has a great plan for us, but we've got to first understand that because of our first family, we are fallen and separated in sin. When we understand that we can be restored in a new walk with God, a right relationship, then God can change our thinking. God can not only change our acting, but God can change our thinking. And if you are not a Christian, some of this is never going to set with you. Some of this is never going to become clear to you. But would you give your life to God today through Christ? If you have questions, I'd encourage you to go back to those first 23 messages. If you suffer from insomnia, I encourage you to go back and watch or listen. I hope it'll help you in your struggle. I really do encourage you to get caught up with us because what we're going to wade into today is some of the deepest water I have ever attempted to swim. It is a challenging text with several interpretations, and I'm going to do my best to quickly unpack those for us today. That being said, stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. We'll read Genesis. Genesis 6, 1 to 8, I'll focus on a few of the early verses of that particular chapter. And I promise you, you have my word. Next week will be much easier. It's a simpler message. Uh, although I think if you'll listen carefully today, I think this is going to help some of you. I think after what I heard in the first service, I do think this is going to speak to some hearts today, maybe in a way that you don't expect when I read the text. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. Remember now, we've gone through all the genealogical lists, Seth, Cain, these, uh, the followers, the, the, the children of these men has been unpacked for us from Adam and Eve to Cain and Seth. And then we get into Noah, this guy named Noah, who had three sons. And now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. And that's really the hang up for most people. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? By the end of the message, I hope that you have made an assessment of that. And they were beautiful, these daughters of men. And they took wives for themselves of all whom, uh, of all whom they chose. But something's off. Now watch this. The Lord said, Yahweh said, my spirit shall not strive or abide with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Y'all, does anybody remember how old Methuselah was when he died? Yeah, 969. Whoa, God, what's happening here? You just cut our life expectancy by a whole lot. 
Well, remember, sin not only affects humankind on the outside, sin affects us cellularly. Sin affects us all the way down to the very core of our being. And God said, these folks are bad. They're really bad. I don't want them to be bad this long. So I'm going to cut their life. Later in the Bible, he cuts our life expectancy again. So 120 is sort of the extreme. But stay with me and let's look at four. This is really complicated and people get all out of sorts on this one. Then there were giants on the earth in those days. Big problem. The word Nephilim in Hebrew doesn't necessarily mean giant. In fact, I don't think it's an accurate description of that word, but I'll explain. But there were these big warrior leaders, maybe you could say scary dudes on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And then those who were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, but something shifts again. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I made them. I'm so thankful for this verse. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I am truly grateful for a fellow named Noah. And if we didn't read ahead and know what the story is, we'd all be curious, what did this guy do? (laughs) How is it that he found grace? But I pray today that as we unpack some of the most challenging verses of this passage, that you would now teach us by your word and spirit. Let us have eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys. So in studying a lot of commentaries and study Bibles, I went through 35. I ended up typing up 90 single-spaced pages of notes just for this message. Don't worry. Um, We should have just brought in Chick-fil-A, but they were closed today. Sorry about that. Um... I'll tell you the truth, guys. After all of that study and time and reading to my eyes bled, I still am not convinced that any one position is totally 100% right. I'm going to give you three. There are more than three. There are nuanced variants of these three. But I'm going to give you three positions that commentators have generally used. Many will make quotes like this. Unquestionably, Genesis 6, 1 to 4 is the most demanding passage in Genesis for the interpreter. Every verse is a source of exegetical difficulty. Amen. Uh, Walter Ewell of the commentary on his evangelical commentary on the Bible said this, few episodes in scripture defy dogmatic interpretation as this one. I can be really, really, really sure about most passages. This is one I can't be totally convinced about in my position, but what I can give you is four truths. What I can tell you right out of the gate, and if you got notes, guys, go ahead and fill all of these in at one time. It'll make it easier. I'm going to give them to you one, two, three, four. I can tell you this definitively, and scholars agree, and Bible preachers agree on these truths pretty well universally. Number one, the number of people and the wickedness of mankind was multiplying on the earth. That one goes without question. Bad things are happening and God's not going to take it anymore. Bad stuff is happening. So we begin to see that that is unquestioned throughout this text. Secondly, an unquestionable truth, the lifespan of man is going to be shortened and a universal catastrophic judgment of sin and punishment was coming. Now, did these verses tell us what the punishment was? No, but they give us hints. They give us foreshadowings. Next week, I'll unpack that. What's really cool about the Bible is, I know we've read the whole story. Have you ever watched an M. Night Shyamalan movie? Anybody? Am I the only heathen in the room? 
Okay, do you notice how M. Night changes things and pulls the rug on you, and then if you watch it a second time, you begin to see hints? Have you ever noticed that? Like if you've seen the village or if you've seen signs or other things, why does the little girl drink water all the time? Why is the guy always swinging the bat? Those things begin to add up. The Bible is very much the same way in the sense that there is a big overarching truth of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we can we use different words, but there's a big overarching truth. But there are hints that get at what's coming. And what we find is that the, man, uh, the lifespan of man is dropping and a punishment is coming, but it's for a very good reason. And then watch, the over, this is number three, the overwhelming continual sinfulness of man truly grieved or pained God as he looked upon his creation. The language is very vivid in the Hebrew. God really hurts. And next week, I'm going to talk about that as a father. God really hurts when his kids aren't listening, when his kids are doing things that they ought not be doing. And number four, amid this terrible darkness, God's grace shined brightly on a man named Noah. Now, Noah has a strange story. <laughs> Noah's a very interesting cat. I just read about him in my quiet time the other day, and I'm just shaking my head thinking, Lord, this guy still had a lot of issues, but you used him because he found grace in your eyes. And it's a beautiful picture of what God does even today. And I would say to us, we should not be afraid of the hard passages. Sometimes we want to think we've got it all figured out. Sometimes we want to know everything there is to know about a particular verse or about how God meant that. Here's what I know. You don't want a God that my brain can totally figure out because my brain is awful small. And if God can be contained within my ears, he's too small a God. I'll give you an example of something. I don't know if y'all use Apple or what you use, but let's just listen if this will work. Hey Siri, who won this year's Orange Bowl? Tennessee outdid Clemson in the Orange Bowl by a score of 31 to 14 on December 30, yeah. 2022. Yeah, I wanted to remind you, all fans of that because of yesterday's whooping Kentucky brought to us. That was disgraceful. Anyway, y'all know basically how that works, right? Your house may be like mine. We walk in, we say Alexa, and, and then lights come on and different things happen. We've got cameras attached to stuff. I know the basics. I can sort of tell you how my voice gets translated to data and goes out there and the interwebs and all pick it up and it pulls the data back and then that AI speaks it back to me. I can give you an overview, but I promise you, I can't give you the nuanced detail of how every part and piece of that works. Very few people on the planet are smart enough to give you every nuanced detail. Even Apple itself, even these great tech companies have departments and teams and no one person and no one team develops it all from hardware to software Nobody's smart enough to fit. Now, if that is just one little area, how much more when we come to the things of God? Why would you think you can always figure it all out all the time? You can't. Don't be worried about these texts that are so challenging, but take the time to walk through them. So let me break it down even simpler and give you one phrase to think about. Then I'm going to pick it up next week and add three phrases to it. Number one, sin is multiplying. That's what I want you to think today. Sin is multiplying. Verse one, chapter six, the population is growing. Men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that guys. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Man's just doing what God says do. But something weird happens in verse two and something weird happens in verse four. There's this group called sons of God. 
And there's another group called daughters of men. And these daughters of men are beautiful. And these sons of God took wives for themselves. And you think, okay, I just got to identify who the sons of God and the daughters of men are. But then they got this really weird verse. And there are giants on the earth, gigantes in the Latin Vulgate. But I disagree with the translators. And let me tell you why I disagree. The word Nephilim is only used twice in all of the Bible. Another time when the spies are going into the land of uh, Canaan, the promised land, and they said, oh, but we're, at, we're as grasshoppers in their sight. They're Nephilim. And there's this idea then that that word must mean big person or giant. That's actually not what the Hebrew consonants break down to. Ancient Hebrew didn't have vowels. It had only consonants. And even the greatest linguistic scholars will tell us it is ambiguous at best to say giants. In fact, if it did mean giant, why didn't it apply to Goliath? That word was never used for Goliath. And in the two times it's used, here and in Numbers, I believe it's 1333, the Bible is not at all clear. I believe the word probably means, it could mean uh, great warrior, it could mean leader. But what people do is they conflate this and they say there were giants on the earth. And then in verse four, and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, they bore children to them and they flip those. They go whoop, and they say, ooh. The sons of God and the daughters of men had kids and they were giants. That's not the way the Bible reads. That's not the logical reading of chapter 6 verse 4. And so I want to do a better job of unpacking the text as it's presented. I want to give you three of the primary positions. Again, there are many variants of these, but there's what we call the royal view. The royal view. And what that, I think that's problematic, by the way. I think it has a lot of issues. But the royal view says this the sons of God were magnates, they were despots, they were people of great power, royals, tyrannical leaders. And these tyrannical leaders wooed these beautiful women called the daughters of men. Well, if they were tyrannical and mean, why, did, why were they called sons of God? That seems like an odd designator. But nonetheless, Jewish interpreters and Orthodox Judaism held that position for many, many centuries. They believed that it was a royal view because Elohim, sons of God, doesn't always mean God the Father in heaven. And that's true. Elohim does not always mean God the Father in heaven. Elohim is a title for a king, a ruler, a, a high up, a master. And so they, they have that to go on. And, you know, I guess it's possible, but many now disavow that view. There are very few people you're going to find, very few pastors, very few Bible commentators that say, oh, it's royal. And so you have these, these high up leaders and they're kind of going into the poor villages, getting daughters. It just, it doesn't really make a lot of sense in the context. So that's the royal view. The most common view and one that a number of you have probably held over the years, and one that I never fully held but leaned into for a season is called the angelic view or the fallen angel view. Now, again, while it may be numerically most popular, I find it to be quite peculiar. And so what the, what the proponents of this view would say is that these sons of God are angelic beings. They actually normally call them fallen angels. Again, I have a real problem. Why would you call a fallen angel a son of God? You might call them a son of Satan, but not a son of God. Proponents of the view say it's the oldest known opinion, and they're accurate. At least by the second century BC, Jews and in the first century BC or uh, first century AD, early Christians were espousing this view. 
They're basically saying that they take the language of Jude chapter one, verse six. Jude only has one chapter. And it says that angels did not keep their, fall, they keep their proper estate, but they were fallen. And they take Jude chapter one, verse six, and they say, see, see right there, those angels show up in Genesis six. There's just a major problem with that. There's no real reason to assume that that's what happened. In fact, I would argue that Jude 6 is more easily understood as Satan and his cohort fell. They tried to usurp God. Satan and what we now call demons tried to usurp God and they were fallen. I think that's the biblical interpretation. But they used that and they used some other text. And you know, what's interesting to me is that in Matthew 22, 30, angels are not said to know marriage. Angels are not said to know procreation. Uh, But we can keep going here and we can say that, you know, um, the angelic view seems to say that angels fell, sons of God, they were at one time sons of God, and they married human women and they created these Nephilim, these giant, and, and God said, oh, we can't have that. But the punishment that's coming has absolutely nothing to do with angels. There's not one shred of evidence that says God is about to punish these angels. Now, you might argue that Jude 6 again is speaking to it, but why wouldn't God say, hey, for you human beings over here, there's water coming, and for you angels over here, you're going to be locked away in an eternal state of torment. But that's not what the Bible says here. And so it's very difficult to believe, in my opinion here, that these are angels. In fact, do we ever have a single instance where angels procreate with human beings? I I don't see it. Now, I've never read this in any commentary, but I did think of one thing as I was processing this. Do we ever in the Bible, even one time, have an instance of something divine or holy other than human procreating with something human? Well, yes, we do. It's called the virginal conception. We do have the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary and creating in her womb the God-man Jesus. And so some might argue, see, it could happen. And certainly there are times when angels possess human bodies or let me say, look like humans. Certainly with Lot, we know that people, the men of the city wanted to come in and actually have sex with the male figured angels. But there's, again, number one, is the Holy Spirit, be careful, is the Holy Spirit an angel? No, the Holy Spirit is not an angel. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune Godhead. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not a created being as an angel. Number two, do you have any indicator at all of angels procreating anywhere else in the Bible? No, not one shred of evidence that angels, do we have any evidence that angels marry or are given in marriage? No, you don't. And so I find it to be quite odd that people would say, well, based on 2 Peter 2, 4, that God did not spare certain angels and Jude 6, those are, and John MacArthur and some other modern pastors would espouse this view. I think their exposition is, is tentative at best. And I say that with deep respect because I love Dr. MacArthur and I think that he's spot on on many things. I simply disagree because even if you hold an angelic view, please understand this cannot happen today. Because if you hold an angelic view, you must believe 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 point to angels and they've been locked away. They've been cast down already. So nobody can go around saying, hey preacher, An angel got me pregnant. No, you can't say that today. That doesn't work, okay? And there's no more virginal conceptions either. So that doesn't work today. But I just believe this angel view or fallen angel view is too peculiar that angelic beings are procreating with humans and creating a race. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's a great race on the earth 
I would argue warriors, leaders, um, even tyrannical warriors, Nephilim, just like they saw in Canaan. But I hold a view that actually attaches itself to chapters four and five. Now, what did God, through Moses, who wrote it down, what did God spend a lot of time unpacking? Look at your Bible in chapters four and five. What, spent, what did God spend a lot of time on listing in four and five, guys? What was that in your Bible? What do you call it? It starts with a G, it ends with enology. Okay, <laughs> just making sure you're with me. I know it's tough, but don't sleep yet. God spends a lot of time unpacking genealogies, does he not? God never wastes anything, is that true? So if God spends all this time, and here's what happens. Okay, Cain, I'm not gonna let him kill you. I'm gonna place a mark on you, but you're gonna be a wild man. You're gonna go out and you're gonna kinda be a crazy group, but I'm not gonna let him kill you. And then God said, but, but, but I'm gonna promise you another son, Eve. He's gonna be a son of God. He's gonna be a son from me. His name will be Seth. And what God's going to do over the next chapter and a half is he's going to unpack the line of Seth. And this is when the Bible says they started calling on the name of the Lord. A godly line called Seth. But there's also the unpacking of a more ungodly line from Cain. Not Canaanites, that's totally different. Cainites. Offspring of Cain or Cainites. Offspring of Seth are what? Sethites, okay, it's not that complicated. Canaanites and Sethites. So the third view is commonly called the Sethite view. I believe it's the most possible of all the views. Let me see if I can unpack it for you. Church fathers such as Augustine, reformers like John Calvin interpret, son, and I fall in line with them, fall in, uh, interpret the sons of God as godly men, meaning the righteous line of Seth. Now again, there are difficulties in this interpretation, but what I believe you find is from Adam and Eve, if we were to do a um, family tree, from Adam and Eve, you get a line of Cain and you get a line of Seth. Certainly they had many, many, many more children, but this is what the Bible's articulating right now. The line of Seth, the sons of God, are a godly line. The line of Cain is not so godly a line, it is a more ungodly line. And so we begin to see the contrast in those lines leading up to this teaching. During the period of amazing Sethite expansion, the Sethite family begins to marry outside of its godly heritage, which results in moral decline. To me, this smacks of truth all over the Bible. God says, do not put the holy with the unholy. Do not let the believer intermingle with the non-believer. Do not let yourself become unequally yoked. In my counseling ministry over nearly 25 years, I've always, always found difficulty when two come together that are on different spiritual foundations. I'm not saying some haven't made it work, but God says don't do it for a reason. In other words, in my family, we've told our kids no missionary dating. You don't think I'm just gonna date him to bring him to Jesus. No, that's not what the Bible says. I'm gonna put one good apple in a bunch of bad apples. Is the good apple gonna become good? Hello? I'm gonna put one bad apple in a bunch of good apples. What's gonna happen? They're all gonna become rotten. 
You don't take the holy and you mix it with the unholy. Jesus spoke about that, talking about pearl and swine and there are other biblical examples. You don't mix the two lines. And I think what happens is this is where God is taking us saying, look, this avoids any hint of being mythical or weird. Angels don't have to procreate. And it clearly there is this designator, sons of God, given many times in the Bible to godly followers. You can find it in Deuteronomy 14, 32, Psalm 37, Proverbs 14, Luke 3, Romans 8, Galatians 3. I can give you list after list where sons of God actually are talking about a godly group of people. And so what I think here is that, um, let me go with McGee. Listen to what J. Vernon McGee said. He says, the matter of the sons of God and the daughters of men is something that's caused no end of discussion. There are a great many good men who take the position sons of God or angels. Fine. Okay. McGee says, I personally cannot accept that. Most of my teachers taught sons of God were angels, and I recognize a great many present-day expositors take that position, though it is waning in popularity, I must say. He said, but if these were good angels, they wouldn't commit this sin. And evil angels would not have been designated the sons of God. Also, listen to this. This is brilliant. McGee says, the offspring here are men, not monstrosities. He said, we have wrongly assumed that these offspring were giants. And I think that's true. When you look at verse 4, it's simply saying, even if you believe the word Nephilim brings, means person of great stature or giant, even if you hold that opinion, which I think is wrong in the Hebrew, you still have to say there were these men on the earth, and by the way, then this group had sons and daughters. Otherwise, the order would be different. You would say they had sons and daughters, and they were these great men. So the order is wrong. But what I would tell you is this. Whatever position it is, it is clear as, as McGee said, these are not monstrosities, they're men. And no angels are getting punished, at least in this text. And so whatever the solution is, what I can tell you is that the behavior was extremely displeasing to the Lord because it deviated from his revealed will for the people. Who was the wisest man to ever live in the Old Testament? Call out his name. Solomon. Did God give him great wisdom? Did God also give him great wealth? But what was Solomon's downfall? It's another W word. The wild women. Solomon liked his girlfriends, his many wives, and his concubines. Could it be said that many a man and many a woman have been led away by something beautiful on the outside, but not so beautiful on the inside? Could it be said, let's go back historically, Seth, he begins to have children. They call on the name of the Lord. They love God. Cain's family, they begin to have children. But Seth's boys look at Seth's girl, uh, I'm sorry, Seth's boys look at Cain's girls and go, mm, mm, mm. You know, my cousin over there, she's looking mighty fine. And the fathers and the forefathers are saying, no, my son, we're walking with God. And this line has chosen to abandon God. Yeah, but daddy, they look mighty, mighty fine. Could it be said that a man has been led astray more than once by a pretty face? Could it be said that a lady has been led astray by a, ugh, I don't know, whatever, a pretty dude, I don't know. Could it be said that we have made decisions based on the external rather than God's preference on the internal? I believe the biblical truth here is quite simple. The holy line of God began intermingling and marrying and procreating with the unholy line of God. God has universally from Genesis to Revelation condemned such practice. And practically for some of you today, I would encourage you, if you are in a relationship 
that is not doing it God's way. Now, I'm not saying you may be together. I promise you, when Cindy and I met, she was so much closer to God than I was. But I was a Christian. I was a Christian out of fellowship with God and truly backslidden. But I promise you, she didn't missionary date me. She knew I was a child of God. But she did bring me up. She did draw me closer to God. But it would not have been right for her to enter that kind of relationship with me had I been lost. It's not God's way. I believe human men from the line of Seth turned their back on their God, looked at the physical beauty of human women, and began to come together. The main thing I would say to you today is study the text for yourself. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I would say this, in essentials we are to have unity. In non-essentials like this, we have liberty. There's freedom. So if you believe in an angelic view, okay, no problem. It's not a salvation issue. But in all things, there's got to be charity. And I want you to keep the main thing, the main thing here, folks. Sin is multiplying. In my own life, especially in middle school. I can remember being a, not a terrible, I'm gonna tell you some stories next week because <laughs> I feel like it's probably better to tell you on myself than on my kids. So I'm gonna tell you about a few things next week. But there were a couple of guys I hung out with that when we were apart, we were pretty good kids. But when you got us together, we were toxic. We got into more trouble and cut up into more mess. Have you ever hung out with anybody that you're okay apart, but when you get together, man, it's on like Donkey Kong. Some of y'all don't even know what Donkey Kong is. Do you know what I'm talking about? And there are some toxic relationships like that. It's oil and water stuff. Now, some of those guys, well, a couple of them aren't with us anymore, but a couple of those guys I still love. But we were not good together. We, we raised too much cane together. You know how you say that, we raising cane. We, we, we messed up together. And I want to encourage you to consider what God is saying here. Do not allow the holy things of God to mix with the unholy things. And some of y'all just going to have to give that over to the Lord. Back in, uh, as the band comes to join me, back in McLean's, where we live in a little town outside of Greensboro, we moved uh, from Virginia after we got married. And uh, we had had a dog at the time. We were looking at getting something. We went to the pet stores, little mom and pop shop, and we found some finches. Y'all know zebra finches? little gray and black, and then one of them was solid white. And we asked the guy there working at the pet store, I said, do you know what gender these things are? He said, I think they're both boys, but you have to do like a blood test to know for sure. And I'm like, okay, look like boys to me, let's go. So we bring them home and y'all, I guarantee you in very short order, we discovered they were not both boys. Um, because I don't care what kind of emoji you have on your iPhone today, boys don't get pregnant, okay? That's just the truth. And the white one was a girl. And she began to have finch babies. Finches are already noisy and messy, but you put about half a dozen more in the cage, little ones, it was on, it was crazy. We began to have finches multiplying. So we took them and I'd catch them and we'd take them back to the pet store. And for a few years, they traded pet food and supplies for finches. So they sold the finches in the store and we got all of our supplies for free until we just couldn't take it anymore and we had to give them away. But I've thought a lot about that. And I thought, you know, we put those two birds together and they did what birds do, kind of like rabbits, I guess. They just did what they did, and they multiplied, and they were prolific at it, and it got worse. And if we had not given those babies back, I can't imagine how many finches we would have ended up with. Hundreds, I guess. Sin is the same way. 
Sometimes when you get two things together that ought not be together, the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time, you have trouble. And I wanna encourage you as I pray for you today, if some of you need to give something to the Lord, pastors and counselors will be here, but you can just come by yourself also. We got a brand new counseling room that's just opening up as well, a, a room for prayer, a room to meet with folks. But if you wanna come, maybe you need to pray for yourself, maybe you need to pray for children. Maybe you need to pray for grandchildren. Maybe you need to say, Lord, what I've been doing in this relationship, this is not holy. And there's always going to be a punishment coming for taking the holy and mixing it with the unholy. And if you're a Christian today, I would encourage you, keep yourself pure before God in your relationships. And y'all know what I'm talking about. I don't have to be graphic at all in this. I want you to be pure before the Lord because I really believe when we break this text down, it may not be quite as complicated as we've made it. The unholy is mixed with the holy and the outcome is bad as sin is multiplying and a storm is brewing. Y'all stand with me. Now next week, I promise it'll be easier and we'll get a little further into it and we'll really set the stage for the actual punishment phase. But I want you to understand today, as, as many came last hour, I want you to understand, if you need to lay something over before God, um, I've been, I, I've been in those relationships, uh, BC, BC, before Cindy, been in those relationships that were not pleasing to the Lord. Not only hanging out with buddies and getting in trouble, but girlfriends and things. I, I want you to to please hear my heart in this and what the Lord would tell you. It's only a path of destruction when you do it your way instead of God's way. It only leads to a multiplying sin problem. So if you need to lay something down for your life or somebody you care about, please do it. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.